First reading is Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Um, The New Testament reading is on page 740, and it's Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was a still long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. 
Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. It is a great part of God's word to be thankful for, isn't it? Uh, I'd encourage you to keep it open there in uh, Luke 15. We're going to be looking at it a little more closely. We continue uh, on our journey on the, on the road with Jesus, seeing his travels uh, down to Jerusalem. Uh, again, let me add my welcome. If you're new or visiting here for the first time, it's great to have you amongst us. One of the strange delights of um, uh, life and church life this side of heaven uh, is that we're always um, saying hello and saying goodbye. Uh, and so Andrew and Esther are heading off um, to Adelaide uh, this week and uh, for yeah, an uncertain amount of time. Uh, and, uh, and on the other side, we have Steve and Melinda returning from, well, a year or so in London. Uh, and that's just the delight, but also the sadness of church life, isn't it? You're always saying hello and goodbye. How about we, we pray that God might speak to us, but also give, uh, give our thanks for our friends who come and go. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we thank you for... Uh, The gift of uh, friendship and fellowship in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Father, we thank you that we can gather around him and his word even now. Uh, Father, we uh, pray that your hand of blessing would be upon Andrew and Esther as they head to Adelaide, that they might find uh, good Christian friends uh, down there and that you would be sustaining them as they seek to follow after Jesus there. Uh, And Father, we give you thanks for the giblets and and thank you that you brought them uh, safely back to us uh, after some time away. Uh, and Father, we, we look forward to the day uh, when in heaven we are gathered with all your people, uh, that we might sing your praises there. Uh, Father, we thank you for the way that you have given us hope and made us whole, for the way of the cross the Lord Jesus took our place. Uh, and Father, we, we ask that now as we turn and hear from your word that you would speak to us and enable us to uh, understand a little more of his glory and see it a little more clearly uh, as we seek to follow after him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are you an extravagant person? You know, are we Christians known as a profligate community? Uh, profligate is a beautiful word. I've been looking forward to using it. Uh, it means being recklessly prodigal. It means being extravagant. Uh, even saying the word profligate feels like an extravagance. You, know, you just can't slip it into sentences enough in normal conversation. You know, are we a profligate community? Is that how people know us? Because our God is. God is lavish and reckless and extravagant and profligate. 
Uh, it's a description of God and a description of the kind of lifestyle that Jesus led that led to him offending the respectable sorts of his day. So in Luke 14, uh, which we looked at last week, um, Jesus speaks of how, how God threw a party and throws a party and he invites all the outcasts, all the people who can't pay him back. And so in, in 15.1, uh, where Jerry started reading for us, um, we see now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, him being Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus' words about this indiscriminate banquet uh, drew those people who knew themselves as sinners, drew them closer in. But, you know, the the better class of people, uh, they were alienated by him. And so in verse 3, Jesus tells a series of parables about the profligate heart of God to them. It says in verse 3, to them. The them being those respectable, grumbling Pharisees. Uh, It's an invitation. Come share in God's lavish character. And as we look at probably what is a a very well-known part of God's word to us this morning, this is your invitation to, to share in God's reckless extravagance, to be profligate people. Uh, Jesus tells three, three parables with a common thread. Uh, the first is about a reckless shepherd in verse 4. Um, he's a shepherd of modest means, so uh, he, in those days a flock uh, could easily go up to 200. His is 100. He's not well enough off to afford a co-worker, and this is where he gets a little reckless uh, because one of his sheep is missing, and he risks 99 for the sake of one. And so Jesus asks a rhetorical question in verse 4, wouldn't he leave the 99 to find the one? And the answer is, no, of course not. It's stupid, isn't it? This is not business savvy. This is an unwise risk management to risk 99% of your assets for the sake of one. Um, The guy's a fool, he's reckless. And then when he finds it, he's overjoyed. And he's got this extravagant joy that he just infectiously wants to share with others. And Jesus doubles his point to them uh, with a profligate woman. Uh, she loses a drachma, a silver coin, uh, about a day's wages. You know, so it's, it's enough that you'd want to look out for. It's not five cents. Uh, and so she goes on a careful search. Um, houses of the day uh, were often windowless, and so they need to, to sweep and, and light a lamp so she can find it. At this stage, she hasn't done anything particularly reckless until she finds the coin. Now, in verse 9, she calls the neighbours together, come share my joy. Now, I I misplace things all the time. Uh, My wallet, my keys, um, gift vouchers I've been given, uh, important documents. You know, filing is not my strong point. Uh, Thankfully, it is Anna's. You know, but, but I've never thought of phoning around my, you know, my friends to let people know when I've found what I've lost. Oh, guys, I, I'd misplaced my wallet. Great news, I found it. Why don't you come over, celebrate with me? You know, my credit card was in it. Uh, you know, it, it's just absurd, isn't it? It's an over-the-top reaction. The common thread is the, this kind of search and rejoice policy. But where the, the reckless shepherd emphasises the extravagance of the search, uh, this... this Profligate woman's story focuses on the -the over-the-top joy, the the, the kind of soap opera kind of celebrations. Both, though, capture the heart of God. Verse 7, I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents 
than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. And again, in verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, we've got to get this. At this point, both parables have had all the the gentleness of a sledgehammer uh, to those who are appalled at the kind of company Jesus keeps, the kind of sinners he hangs around with. He's edgily used a shepherd and a woman to be the God figures in his story, um, who, neither of whom would be particularly esteemed in the Pharisees' eyes. So even that is kind of trying to poke them even further about their kind of presuppositions. And, and, and his third parable, though, is more developed. It's more nuanced and it cuts more sharply to the heart. So Jesus introduces us to um, a prodigal father and his two sons. Verse 12, um, the youngest son becomes a stench in dad's nostrils. So he demands his inheritance here and now. Um, quite literally, uh, it go, you know, reads that, that he's asking for a portion of his father's life, what his father's life will leave him. You know, Dad, I want your cash, but I really could do without your presence. I don't want your presence. I want your money. Now, the idea of a, a younger son doing bad, coming good, um, was actually a well-known kind of story of the day. It uh, wasn't particularly surprising. In fact, the audience is expected to cheer the younger son on. Uh, and if, if you know perhaps some of the stories in the Bible, you, know, you, you might know um, of the younger son being the hero, you know, Cain and Abel, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob. Younger sons, great. You know, the, the audience is expe- But Jesus takes a little further... The kind of request this younger son makes is just unheard of in any other literature in the Middle East. Just the level of offence. So there's the personal insult of, Dad, I know you've cared for me, but quite frankly, I want you dead. But even more, uh, it puts the family at risk because in in dividing the land, in taking the land, selling it off, it reduces the family's wealth, it reduces the family's status and security. And to cap it all off, there's public shame and ridicule on the father. Uh, you know those looks in shopping centres that um, misbehaving children get and their parents get as well? Uh, you, know, you can just imagine the kind of look that the neighbours would have been giving to this family when that son asked for his inheritance. The shame and the ridicule. You know, I think we've got to be careful. We don't sugarcoat and underestimate what a genuine wretch this son is. Okay, uh, circumstances aren't to blame and, and there are parts of the way Jesus tells the story that are, that are crass and in some ways a little bit cleaned up for um, our modern kind of listening because uh, Jesus wants us to realise in verse 13 that, that this son is not a, a, you know, a hooker with a heart of gold, if you know that kind of character. Um, St Augustine, uh, when he described his pre-Christian days, he, he characterised it by the sizzling of unholy loves. Uh, This younger son sizzled in an unholy way. Uh, He is not a lovable rogue. He's just a rogue. Until it hits rock bottom. Uh, And then there's that realisation in verse 17 that, you know, even if he worked as a hired hand for his dad, his life would be better off than there with the pigs. And and the more and more I read over uh, this story, a familiar story to me during the week, and the more I read uh, other people's reflections on it, the more I'm persuaded that this son uh, undergoes what is a questionable repentance, if it's even a repentance at all. Uh, So at a particular Salvation Army uh, soup kitchen, 
and all this home an older homeless guy um, gave some advice to a, a guy who was new on the streets. He said, "Take a dive for Jesus each day, and you always get to eat good." I.e., if you just pretend to be a bit religious with religious types, it turns out well. Is that for me, Dennis? <laughs> good on you, Carol. Sure, sure. The more I look at this son uh, and reread his story, the more I wonder whether he really has done anything more than, than just pretend to be religious. You know, because that's the key. Be religious, they'll look after you. And I, I suspect that's what Jesus is saying about this younger son. Hey, you know, if you notice his motivation in verse 17, he's not particularly apologetic. He just works out, I've got a better option if I went home. It's complete self-interest. Um, the language of his rehearsed speech in verse 18 is just the stuff of formulaic religiosity. You know, he's just going through the motions. And you put it there alongside the, the parables of the sheep and the coin. Uh, in case you didn't get it, that, you know, they can't save themselves. Uh, sheep and coins don't do that. Uh, and, and if you, you add it to, to the language used in verse 24 by the father of lost and found, dead and alive. You know, again, dead people don't make themselves living. I don't think Jesus is, is giving kind of, you know, two parables from a Calvinist angle and one from an Arminian side. They're all the idea of, here is a son who really hasn't changed. Why does that matter? What difference does it make as we read the story? Well, all because of the over-the-top welcome that he receives from his dad before there have been any signs of living a morally better life. Uh, so in verse 20, his father is filled with compassion and he runs out to him and there aren't any recriminations. There's no, I told you so, if you just listen to me and you know, none of that. You know, this son who has hurt him and shamed him and brought his reputation down in the community, none of that. Instead, the father actually shames himself further so that he could welcome him home. Uh, so he disregards protocol of the day and he runs. That was a no-no for you know, the man of the household to run. Uh, the father then actually acts more like a mother. So he affectionately kisses and clothes and feeds this boy. And, and he reinstates this sinner as a son. You know, not kind of, I'll give you some time if you work it off and maybe we'll kind of reconsider the position and you know, what you're doing. None of that kind of thing. And then he, he even invites the whole community to, to an outrageously expensive party. So he kills a calf. The, the idea is that would have been saved up for a, a particularly significant moment, a wedding feast. So I, I don't know, I understand the cost of weddings these days averages about $30,000 for you know, the wedding all up uh, in, in Sydney. You kind of go, that's the kind of cash he's blowing on this son coming home. And he invites the community who, for the last few years while he's been away, would have been thinking, what a pathetic son. You're despising him. And now he's saying, why don't you come and be excited with me because he's come back. Share the joy. You've got to, the father's actions are nothing less than profligate. There, there hasn't been a sign of real repentance and yet the offer of a real embrace and real forgiveness is offered. He magnifies his own shame because of his compassion. If anyone in the story is prodigal, that's just a fancy word for saying wasteful, uh, it's the father, not the son. He forgives and he welcomes to the point that he gets disgraced. You know, his, his lack of self-esteem is on par or almost as ridiculous as the kind of naked, 
friendless Jesus who hung on a cross outside Jerusalem, shaming himself for people who despised him. But isn't that our profligate God? Reckless in a search for the lost, lavish in celebrating undeserving people. Uh, If nothing else, this story makes clear that God welcomes undesirables, the kind of people in Luke 14 who he's inviting to his banquet. Uh, He indiscriminately hands out mercy. Uh, One of the beautiful things that happened in our uh, Connect group this year was um, having someone pray for Kim Jong-il, who's an unredeemably awful tyrant in North Korea. And yet not even he is beyond the reckless mercy of God. Whatever you have done uh, or said or thought, uh, God offers his forgiving embrace. And for, for some of us, that may sound just too good. You know, some of us, I suspect, have done things that uh, maybe even we can't forgive ourselves for. Uh, someone was sharing uh, with, with um, Anna and I the other day of uh, how, as a boy, his younger brother had died. Uh, the brother was, was just two. Uh, it seemed he found rat poison that was um, stored under the, under the sink or in the shed. I'm a bit vague about that point. Um, But this toddler was inquisitive and he just ate it up and uh, he died. Uh, And rightly or wrongly, his mother lived her life way down with the burden of that son's loss, uh, without the freedom of forgiveness, without feeling she could be forgiven. Uh, If you are holding on to burdens, uh, rightly or wrongly, um, God offers an embrace that knows no bounds. And at that point, Jesus turns the knife. So we meet again in the story of that older son who's out there working, still working, in verse 25. And he hears that there's a party. He hears the singing, the dancing, the the music. He he finds out the reason. And in anger, he refuses to go in. And so again, in verse 28, the profligate father has to go out to another son and find what was lost. Again, he shames himself. Do you notice in verse 28, he pleads with the son rather than command his son as he could have. Just because the older son shared the estate and shared the work and shared the roof, he didn't share his father's extravagant heart. And so in verse 29, he blasts his dad. Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders And yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And and as he's venting his disappointment with his father, there is something tragic about him revealed. This son has only ever viewed his relationship with his father in terms of slavery and obedience um, and, and getting just desserts. You know, what's revealed is for all those years of being so close, working alongside with his father, uh, deep down it's been resentment and disappointment at how his father goes about things. And the father responds with gentleness to this harsh outburst. He reminds him, no, you've always had everything, every blessing you've been enjoying and shared. And, and he explains his actions in verse 32. We, ha- we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
It wasn't actually a choice to celebrate. It was a, a compulsion. It, it is necessary. We had to. Um, the word there is used is the same word Jesus uses to, to describe it was necessary for him to go to the cross. He had no other choice. Again, the father offers the, the embrace of forgiveness to this son apart from repentance. He's not sorry, and yet the offer is there. Come inside, come and share the joy. Be part of the party. Three stories about a profligate God, our profligate God. He's reckless in searching. He is lavish when he celebrates. And it's told why? To invite us in to share that joy. So like a a great storyteller, Jesus leaves it hanging. We never hear what the older brother does. He leaves it hanging because you kind of go, oh, I wonder what he does do. Does he come in? Even better, it leaves it to us. What, what, What will we do? How will we respond? So, you know... How did those first listeners respond? Well, we can read on in Luke's Gospel and we'll see exactly how the Pharisees responded to the message Jesus was giving. But this morning, what will you do with our profligate God? I hope, I hope we will share his heart. In two ways, I hope we share it. One is, I hope we recklessly seek the lost. And secondly, that we become a community that receives sinners joyously. Now, over and over again, God goes out and and he seeks the lost recklessly. Um, He searches for the lost sheep and the lost coin. He takes initiative with both sons. And the more I've reflected uh, on on this story uh, during the week, I wondered if we share the same kind of extravagant concern for those lost. Uh, Alfred Olwa is um, uh, Dean of Theology at the Ugandan Christian University uh, after he, um, he recently completed a PhD here in Sydney. Uh, Uganda, um, I mean, yeah, might be struggling in all sorts of ways, but it's not struggling in terms of Christian growth. Uh, the Anglican denomination there alone has nine million members, which is over a quarter of the nation's population, and it's actually growing. Uh, But Olwa says this isn't the case for all Ugandan churches. Um, He says those who are struggling, this is his observation, he goes, those who are struggling are struggling because they they model a ministry focused on other things than evangelism, that their congregations are all asking, what's the church done for me? That they are self-focused, not Christ-focused. And so uh, he talks about how he and his faculty make time to evangelise uh, in obedience to Christ's command. And he he, he was out here and he gave a sermon to Sydney Siders and he said this, Uh, I hope you will wake up and move beyond talking and strategizing about evangelism. I sense in my mind and spirit that Australians do more talking than doing. Get your hands dirty. Go out and tell non-Christians about Jesus. I bring a wake-up call. It'd sound better if I had a Ugandan accent, you know that. Uh, But the wake-up call still works, doesn't it? Is he right? You know, do we spend more time wondering what church has done for us or telling non-Christians about Jesus, getting our hands dirty? You know, strategy is good, but not at the expense of compassion. Uh, when, when God first revealed his name to Moses, it was, it was not um, the Lord, the Lord, the strategic and well-trained God. Uh, you know, and yet some of say, would say Western Christianity acts as though that's exactly what he said. What did he say? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. It's what 
when we read Jonah. It's what Jonah knew God was like because he had spent his life close to God and yet hated, despised the heart of God and was angry just like that older brother. You know, do we share God's reckless heart for sinners? Even the really, really bad ones. Not just kind of the nice ones who just don't happen to be Christians, but the bad ones. Would we risk the strategy of political correctness and not offending? You know, leave the 99 behind for, to save those in need. You know, again, don't, you know, compassion will lead to some strategy. Don't you know, think strategy is always evil. Um, Jesus intentionally placed himself uh, to be in places where he was, he was mixing with those outside the kingdom. You know, and many of us are blessed with that simply by turning up to work every day. Um, you get paid to hang around with people who don't know about Jesus kind of a bonus Uh, but even then uh, you know we need to keep finding ways creating opportunities to be with you know sinners to share the compassion of God with them Uh, I know of someone who joined a yacht club so that he could do just that it it helped he liked sailing you know you seeking the loss doesn't always mean you have to do things you hate Uh, but as you develop that hobby as you put yourself in that place as you build that friendship don't be distracted by the fun and forget the wake-up call from our Ugandan brother. You know, get your hands dirty. Go out and tell non-Christians about Jesus. It's not about getting a name on a roll. It's not about filling up spare seats in church or starting new congregations. That's, by the by, the goal of evangelism is having people take their place in the midst of a joyous celebration because that is how heaven felt about you. That is how God and his company felt about you. Great joy. Wouldn't it be great to have others rejoice over that way? And that second change of heart, you know, becoming a community that that actually receives sinners joyfully. See, when when the Pharisees grumbled about the the company Jesus kept, they were actually speaking the truth about him. He did hang around with awful people. (laughs) Um, Really awful people. He did hang out with sinners. And our challenge, I suppose, as a Christian community is, is to make sure that as we pursue holiness, we don't create a community, you know, like here at church, where, where you have to have evidence of a good life before you can be embraced and welcomed. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this about church life. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. And the final breakthrough to fellowship doesn't occur uh, because... Though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they don't have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. So the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. And so everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. And so we remain alone without sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is... We are sinners. What's his point? You know, as a group of people, we don't need car park miracles every time we come to church. Uh, if you don't know the euphemism car park miracle, it's the idea that you know, you're on your way driving to church, you've been arguing uh, with your wife and you've um, been telling off the kids and uh, just as you pull up, uh, ready to get out of the car, suddenly oh, we're all so at peace with each other and then we wander into church because we just slip the mask on and... Yet at church we don't need those masks. This is a place where sinners can be received joyfully. We should rejoice in the grace not only shown to us but 
shown to other awful, sinful people, people who sin worse than you. You know, we can easily sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, but we must just as easily sing, you know, that saved a wretch like her or him. Rejoice in the grace shown to others as much as shown to us. Welcoming back sinners, not being standoffish or, or suspicious about that person who wandered away for the year and now has come back. But we embrace them and welcome them home before they've proven themselves. Our God is profligate, extravagant. Uh, in a moment, we're actually going to share his joy uh, as we gather at undeserving guests at his table. Uh, we, we're going to come up the front and, and receive communion, partly as a, a symbol of uh, coming united to the one place, partly uh, as an opportunity to actively express it rather than just having it brought to you to, to get up and come forward and respond and meet with him. But before that, we're going to have a time of open prayer. Uh, feel free, I want to invite you, uh, lead us in prayer. Stand where you are, um, come up to the microphone, uh, give thanks, confess, give praise, make requests, think big, think little. Uh, know that we are embraced by an extravagant God. But let me finish with these words to prepare our hearts to meet at his table. God's mercy is unconditional. What will we do? Dear friends, let us repent and join the party, a party that's been going on for 20 centuries. The table is filled with the mercies of God. The wine is blood red. Come, let us hoist the cup with joy. Let's pray. Please come forward and pray with me. Lord and Father, we thank you for uh, your extravagance that you love uh, recklessly sinners who haven't proven anything to you. Uh, and Father, may we be people who rejoice just as much in our salvation as we rejoice in the way that you have shown amazing grace to those around us. Father, give us hearts that love like you. Amen.